Fantasy Animation is a completely free, online, educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. It is staffed by a volunteer army of academics and animators who give up their time to run the website so that our audience can be kept informed not just about the latest goings-on in the world of all things that are drawn, imagined and sculpted, but to help inform them about the historical, political, ethical and aesthetic ramifications of what it means to make an animated fantasy. Check out our weekly blog posts containing insights on everything from the sexual identity of Spongebob Squarepants to how to make an animation on a pair of knickers. You can also access our archive of podcasts featuring Oscar-winning VFX supervisors, historians, classicists, animators and folklorists discussing their favourite examples of fantasy animation. To find out more, visit us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Reddit at FanAnimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research, or visit fantasy-animation.org. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I volunteer as tribute from District 12 to represent Team Fantasy and my name's Alex Sargent. Oh, you do this to me every episode and I now can't think of something mm-hmm. witty in response. So I'm just going to say, mm-hmm. I'm Chris Holiday. Yeah, you're, what, what, you're, what, you're, where would you, which district would you be from? Um, I don't know, one of the, well, I don't know. I you don't strike me as a minor. <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I go 11, I, I go 11, but my goodness, I love an uprising. Oh. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, great. Well, that's 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 some banter to start the episode. Sure? Um, we are talking about Hunger Games, uh, the dystopic uh, young adult uh, franchise, but we're going to focus primarily on the first movie in this episode. Um, and there's loads to talk about. From my perspective, um, we could talk about dystopic fantasies. We could talk about world building. We could talk about... Um, the role of fantasy to articulate ethics and politics, and we've got a very special guest in that regard. Chris, anything digital, anything animated for us to focus on this week? Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in the sort of, I guess, the relationship between CGI um, wizardry and how that is used, kind of digital techno-savvy wizardry is used to de- demarcate certain spaces within the film. Uh, obviously, fantasies of control, which is something we've spoken about on, on previous podcasts. Um, uh, and I guess the sort of the way that technology is folded into into the film to create sort of discourses of the artificial versus the the authentic so yeah first time visiting the hunger games but as i said i'm i'm a fan of a rebellion <laughs> um, and we have a, a special guest uh, for the show to help us through these things and more. Um, she's not here right now because we've already recorded the episode. Um, you're you're going to hear it in just a moment. But we are we joined. We are lucky enough, I should say, to be joined by Dr. Taja Lane, who is an assistant professor in film studies uh, at the University of Amsterdam. Um, Taja is a is a author of number of books, including Bodies in Pain, Emotion, and the Cinema of Darren Aronofsky, uh, Feeling Cinema, Emotional Dynamics in Film Studies, um, and she. She is the author of the very recently published Emotional Ethics of the Hunger Games. So who better to help us through the, the emotional stakes at play in this kind of really interesting franchise? And I think it's a really great conversation. 
Yep, and we began as we we normally do, asking asking Taja what was her sort of into the film. Um, she speaks a lot about all four films within her book, but it was really a sense of what is it about the Hunger Games that speaks to that sort of relationship um, between affect um, and ethics uh, and emotion. So we'll let I'll let Alex do his thing, fade in, and we'll hear Taja talk about the film. Let the games begin. Yeah, so as listeners will know, uh, there's a recurring theme on the podcast that involves me not having seen anything, and often our episodes include conversations where I'm sort of reacting to things for the very first time, and this was definitely the case with today's episode. I hadn't seen any of the Hunger Games films, didn't really know much about them. I'd understood their status as young adult fiction, and of course... Uh, their role in launching Jennifer Lawrence's career, but not much beyond that. And I wasn't too sure uh, if I'd enjoy the films and did perhaps dismiss them on account of their genre. Um, yeah, I've got to say, really, yeah, really liked this this first one, the ensemble cast. Um, and by that, I mean Stanley Tucci, uh, the game within a world structure and the way that it kind of plays out some of the ideas related to control and the digital. Uh, of course, it's construction of gender, it's politics, it's kind of battle royale element that I think is influenced stuff like the Kingsman films uh, and the sense of oppression and dread that marks out uh, a lot of its narrative beats so yeah really intrigued by the film and yeah definitely going to seek out the others I, I had this, exactly the same uh, uh, experience when I watched the first uh, film when I saw the first film and it was in the movie theater it was in Amsterdam it was in this uh, our old art house theater and I didn't know anything about the whole hype, and uh, I just I think I liked the title and I liked uh, the poster. Uh, as a, as a teacher, I was then surprised that uh, my my students, which are the target group, um, they very often dismissed uh, this this series that oh. This um, the Hunger Games doesn't have to be taken seriously because it's because it's young adult uh, fiction uh, and maybe uh, yeah it surprises uh, me as well because it would seem that my I was much more open to what uh, this uh, film and series and and the novels are all about than than my students um, and then I guess uh, the third reason. This, so this, my interest uh, is uh, some kind of cluster of multiple multiple factors. But uh, the third reason was that um, uh, in the context of film philosophy, uh, it is at least it is my impression that um, most scholars are interest, uh, interested in um, films that are already philosophical. That uh, films such as uh, Terence Malick, who has studied philosophy, or uh, Haneke with this uh, very very strong ethical uh, dimension and and uh, and others, um, and I wanted to know if I could do something meaningful um, in the context of film philosophy uh, using this young adult series that everybody is dismissing, nobody is taking it seriously. If I could, uh, if I could uh, discover some uh, deeper layers in it. I'm I'm fascinated what you just said there, Tessa, because I'm I'm equally I'm I'm interested in the kind of ethical turn in film theory at the moment. Um, but my my interest tends to go to as my sort of research interests just um, sort of highlight popular forms of cinema, and I think there's something to mm -hmm. be said about that. In that you know if 
if mass audiences are having any kind of ethical engagement with cinema, it's probably through the popular forms in which they are doing so. So why do, why do you think, to ask a big question to start the podcast, but why do you think um, there is a kind of hesitancy amongst film philosophers to sort of turn to mm-hmm. things like The Hunger Games or you know other kind of works of popular fantasy or animation to kind of to discuss in this terms, is it something to do with the system we're using? Is it good old-fashioned intellectual snobbery? Is it that we've kind of got ourselves in a trench with a couple of films, as you say, the Dardens, you know, Hanukkah, um, Lars von Trier, these kind of ethically provocative filmmakers? Do you have any thoughts as to why that happens, and and why what made you want to sort of counter that? Well, um, I can only speculate, of course, but uh, maybe uh, perhaps one uh, reason is that uh, uh, it, it, it is a little bit scary because I, uh, I, I, could, I might wo- um, worry about my own credibility as a scholar if I am more yeah. interested in um, this very popular uh, film franchise. Um, rather than um, sure. more sophisticated uh, intellectual uh, stuff like uh, Haneke or Larson Trier. So I guess um, perhaps um, one explanation is that uh, one might worry that um, they get a wrong kind of label. Mm. Mm. Um, As in the scholar, the scholar or the the film, sorry. The scholar, right? Because because no. they're doing again the intellectually interesting. We're doing air quotes, listeners. Uh, but we're do, you know the intellectually interesting films are not the the popular ones, so they can't almost they can't take the philosophy or the philosophy. Yes, um, and if I uh, uh, much of what I have read about the Hunger Games. Uh, series, both the novels and, and the films, if, if they try to approach uh, the series from a philosophical uh, point of view, my impression is that it is, uh, it, it is kind of shallow, as if yeah. this series can be only taken serious as philosophically refer- relevant if it can be treated as a kind of uh, crash course to philosophy. And I think that it is, it is because of this reputation as a yeah. young adult genre. I think that the, the genre is the problem problem here i was going to pick up on on um i guess some of the stuff that you've put in into the into the book um emotional ethics of of the hunger games um specifically i think towards the well you talk obviously about the way in which the the or, or the um the, the generic element, but less well, obviously, its relationship to the young adult fiction genre. But I guess also when it then makes the move into into the cinema, we have um, the stuff that you you write in in the book around kind of Tom Gunning and attractions, mm-hmm. and obviously this is all feeding back into into longer histories of how we understand attraction um, and what that might mean in relation to narrative yeah. and what attraction does in relation to narrative. And it seems like that. And also, you do mention you don't mention animation, but you mention digital effects, and obviously trying to say something meaningful about the Hunger Games. We've got kind of three or four competing things. We've got the genre of young adult fiction. We've got popular cinema. We've got 
a relationship mm. to an effects and we've also got a relationship to digital technology and, and kind of histories of attraction and mm. so is it that all those things are coming yeah. together and part of what your book's trying to do is then pull at those threads a little exactly and and what you say about the digital uh, effects and this film being uh, a reboot of a cinema of attractions it is it is spectacular and uh, there are scholars who says who say that uh, this kind of very spectacular uh, cinema can't be critical or political or philosophically meaningful because the spectacular element is always overshadowing the other uh, the other elements, so they can't go uh, hand in hand. Um, but I don't understand why it should be categorically so. I am sure that there are films that are only interested in being spectacles without uh, any uh, other uh, dimension, but I think that, um, uh, well, The Hunger Games, but also I think that uh, Christopher Noble's Batman trilogy uh, is also very spectacular. But I think that it is uh, another example of a film that is uh, interesting from a, a philosophical point of view with uh, ethical dilemmas uh, abound. And so, uh, yeah, I personally do not think that a spectacular elements make a film less uh, interesting uh, philosophically. Or politically, and any other well, reasons. I mean, surely, but, the, um, and this is what your book, I suppose this is, in, in a film like The Hunger Games, which it seems to be inviting and asking us to read to read mm. the construction of its digital images politically, because because we see, and this is what, I mean, you know, I, I, I like the way that the, the film has this centre of control and, and how technology is used to define certain mm -hmm. kinds of space, spaces, but also that, that digital animation and computer animation and the virtual is also used to define the world of the kind of the high-tech wizards versus mm -hmm. the, 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 the sort of yeah. the world in which people are struggling to survive and what it means to bring those two worlds together. Mm -hmm. But you talk about the you know the the structures the unethical political system of of Panem and the fact that you have this character that controls and manipulates the world he does so through a process that we would kind of recognize when we see the control rooms we see the construction of these digital artifacts it's it's minority report mm -hmm. plus the Truman show and you mentioned the Truman show as well in the in the book but um it seems like the film's narrative and the way that it uses and has this this character played by Wes Bentley to sort of create and we see on screen digital monsters that are then embedded into the mm -hmm. world surely the connection between the, the digital animation and the digital creatures and the fantasy monsters the fantasy creatures um the yeah. relationship to the political system and it means that we can only yes. read its use of digital technology in these political terms absolutely yeah because they are they yeah. symbolize uh, this this panoptic totalitarian uh, uh, situation and it is even uh, more interesting in uh, the second uh, second uh, second film uh, catching fire because it is not only uh, these creatures that uh, become symbols for uh, Panem's or the, or the oppressive uh, power of Panem but it is the space itself uh, so, uh, especially in the game arena where you have all these veggies with uh, where the space becomes, uh, by means of di digital technology, both within the film as also for us, the spectators, uh, 
it becomes this, uh, uh, so this, uh, this symbolism becomes a, a spatial mm. metaphor for uh, mm. political oppression in which both the characters in the film uh, as well as we as spectators are immersed because of this, this very immersive uh, visuals that uh, the digital technology mm. special effects uh, create here. No, no, I think there's so much we could, well, there's so much I want to talk about in terms of world building um, and, and registers of fantasy. I watch, when we rewatch these things uh, for the podcast, I was, I was watching it the other day and, and I was struck by how many different kind of um, registers of fantasy that the uh, the story is playing with. And I'd like to talk about the kind of the two the two the two act or the two the two half structure to the piece when we've got the sort of set up to the Hunger Game arena where we get the sort of world the delicate world building of the world of Panem and and and, and what it means to sort of live in this world and then we get the sort of alternate almost an alternative world within this world of of the Hunger Games which is part video game part philosophical thought experiment part Big Brother house part battle royale and and there's loads of like you talk wonderfully in your book about different like types of spectators in the room both us and those dramatizers there's loads we could get onto with that um what i'd like to just sort of if we could backtrack a little mm -hmm. and start with is is so w what what let's for listeners who are who are who are perhaps fans of the hunger games but didn't necessarily know they were ethically and philosophically interesting what do you think is um at stake in this film that is worth thinking about in terms of ethics. Um, your book, you know, engages with notions of the emotion. I wonder if you could just set up what your sort of key argument of the book is, if you don't. I am not sure if there is an easy, easy answer to that because I have tried to uh, demonstrate in uh, my book that um, it is, uh, well, I guess this, uh, the main point is that uh, these films are ethically engaging through emotions. Mm. But, what this ethical insight is depends on uh, depends on the emotion. Uh, uh, so this ethical uh, ethical uh, dimension and the emotional engagement it is it is somehow intertwined. It is it is related. So uh, when um, for instance um, in the reaping scene in the first uh, installment of the film um, when uh, Primrose is when her name is uh, called. I am um, suspecting that most of the people would say that this film is uh, this scene is about fear, but I insist it is about shame, or at least the shame is a more important emotion uh, in this scene, uh, and it has uh, it has consequences for its uh, what it what the scene might mean from the ethical ethical point of view. So I guess my point of uh, in my book is that um, when we discuss the ethical uh, significance of these films, we have to discuss it somehow uh, in relation to the emotions that they evoke and the, what, what the logic is of these emotions, because the ethical, ethical significance changes depending on which emotion at any, any, any point has the upper hand. Uh, because this, and this is a very complicated, uh, complicated thing, because... Um, because in my view, this is very complex, complex frame, uh, complex uh, film series from the point of view of emotions. So, so to ask kind of, I guess, a deliberately kind of Socratic question, 
I think for listeners perhaps who are coming at this not necessarily as academics, but as people who are, you know, no have a concept of what ethics is and have a concept of how films might encourage ethical questions. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't ethics and emotions go hand in hand? You know, what what you know because part one of the key arguments of your book seems to be that that's important that we think about that and perhaps as film scholars we don't do enough of thinking about that and that Mm -hmm. might be a way of us philosophizing popular cinema better Mm -hmm. is thinking about the role of emotions but 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 let's why wouldn't that be important or what what has has set it up that suggests that it wouldn't be because because well this is this is the debate Mm -hmm. uh, uh, within within ethics Uh, uh, on the one hand there are those who say that uh, ethics is something it is something universal it is something something very abstract it is a universal law that we must follow and it has uh, nothing to do with uh, the subjectivity of uh, of, of uh, individuals and then there are those uh, I think that there are moral sentimentalists if I am I, I do describe it somewhere in um, mm-hmm. introduction of, of my book uh, who say that, yes, but if this was uh, true, then nobody would do anything uh, ethical ever, because uh, these sort of universal ideas about what is right and what is wrong, they don't have a motivational power. So we have to feel something uh, towards things in order to be able to act uh, ethically correct. Uh, So... um, these are the, these are the two uh, two views, and it is between these two views that much of the debate uh, continues. As, as far as if uh, if I have, as far as I if I have understood it uh, correctly, at least. Uh, and I'm my my own position is somewhere in between. Um, and uh, so it, is, is it is it Kant's fault then? It's because we sort of by you know this kind of post-Kantian. The intellect tells us what we should do, and we as creatures sort of need to follow that. That that the ethics have become quite a lot focused on the cere- the the kind of almost tortured cerebral act of kind of becoming ethical despite ourselves. Mm-hmm. When and that makes it quite difficult to talk about movies that seem to offer us quite effective feelings of right and wrong, uh, or, or is it something else? This question is a very difficult, a good, good question, but difficult one to ask because uh, how can we ever find out where uh, where the line goes? If we agree, uh, at least this is this is this would be my hybrid position that uh, in every ethical uh, dilemma uh, or in any situation that sort of. addresses our ethical uh, sensitivity and there is both rationalism and affect is both uh, both elements are involved Uh, it is very often the affect that alerts us uh, to the uh, ethical significance of the situation for instance it is very often so that we react with some emotional anger for instance, before we uh, start uh, consciously uh, reflecting on what is what is ethically wrong with the situation, but I think that uh, this this distinction between ration, rationality and emotion 
uh, not only in the context of ethical thinking, but just like uh, in general, I think this is artificial at best, because this is not how we are in this world. Uh, we are in this world simultaneously uh, emotional and, 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 and rational. So you can't really very often make this distinction between uh, rationality and emotionality, because uh, we, uh, most often than not, emotions are rational, at least appropriate uh, uh, responses to the situation. Sometimes emotions can be unrational, uh, but sometimes our ratio can be unrational, because if it, if it lacks the emotional uh, uh, dimension. Sure. Well, s well, some of the great horrors in history have been committed by people thinking very rationally. And some, exactly. yeah, 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 I can, so, yeah. so and, I, and, I, and I love the arguments you make in your book because, you know, for me as a fantasy scholar, you know, a, a, a fantasy is exactly what you're saying about this kind of, you know, schism between affect and intellect as if like there's some sort mm -hmm. of like we're either doing one or the other and we have to pick sides and actually it's much more murky than that. It's, I mean, it's the same with kind of realism versus fantasy, right? We are as creatures constantly living in a world of fantasy and a world of objective reality and, and it's how we negotiate both that that we come to understand either something like the Hunger Games or something very social realistic in the kind of, you know, um, mm -hmm. traditional sense of the word, or indeed how we understand our everyday lives. So, you know, it's, it, it makes, it's a really great project because it, it sets out a way of talking about this kind of exercise in, in imaginative, figurative storytelling, mm -hmm. but nevertheless has some real, effective socio-political consequences and it means we can have a really fun conversation about uh cgi bugs uh and all the kind of cool stuff that's there to entertain in the movie and you talk about entertainment mm -hmm. but 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 knowing that that can provoke really important responses and, and it's a really important yeah. argument to be made um oh thank you <laughs> So, 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 Chris, you yeah. you are going to jump in now. I can see that on your face, listeners. Well, <laughs> it's all this. It's kind of uh, the stuff around um, ethics and and emotion and affect and intellect and the fact that Alex suggested kind of tying it back to to the world. And I was thinking one of the film one of the things that the film does really effectively actually is is it, it throws you in almost from the start. You get a couple of title cards, but I think a lot of what we're saying is or can be attributed to the qualities that seem to be innate to the way that the world is built. Um, and obviously this this is necessary yeah. when we think about the genre of post-apocalyptic. Like we need to catch up very quickly in terms of what's mm. there, what isn't there, what are the new rules of the game. Um, and and I've and I've I know I've mentioned this before, but but the way that you know video games work, you talked a little bit actually Alex, you mentioned yeah. video games mm. in the way that you introduced the film as well. But but this idea of the way that stuff like ruins and world building work in and myth work in, in video games. And, and uh, Tanya Krasinska has written an article on World of Warcraft that talks about the cultural use of ruins um, and how ruins in video games have this awe, as she says, of, of mystery and nostalgia. They were once splendid temples, but they are now symbols of past glory. Um, they become lost objects. And this all feeds into the role of myth. And, and she then connects it up to, to myth as often valued as a, as a lost way of seeing the world, which seemed to be interesting in the way that you were describing mm -hmm. um, your work on the film, but then also what the film does and has to do through the construction of its fictional world. Because after those two title cards, we 
are thrown into right okay so this is mm. how the the kind of system is working this is how these spaces work this is how this is played for entertainment and one of the things that struck me almost immediately was the way that characters seem to have a lack of emotion or a lack of what or maybe they don't but that i was thinking of of um uh, Caesar Flickerman, so Stanley Tucci's character, that I just, the lack of, he's thinking rationally or thinks he's thinking rationally. But one of the ways that the two, I mean, there are lots of ways that the different spaces of um, the world of Pan Am versus the, the world of the games are distinguished. Technology, but one of the main ones is emotion. It feels like that there is a real, there is a real disconnect or a dissonance between the role of emotion in these, in these spaces. Okay, uh, thank you very much. This is uh, it's wonderful. This is wonderful. Um, first of all, I really like what you say about uh, this idea of world building, and yes, uh, this is very much what uh, the Hunger yeah. Games does. I think uh, it builds uh, several worlds within one one cinematic within one cinematic world, and we are very much invited to step into this uh, world. Uh, by means of uh, yeah, immersive yeah. techniques, mm -hmm. among other things. And we have this, uh, uh, maybe perhaps a tendency to uh, think about our engagement with this film uh, through identification. Mm -hmm. And I am not saying that this uh, doesn't play a role in this, uh, this film, especially our identification with Katniss, who is uh, this throughout the whole series. She is the locus of identification. She is the most important uh, narrative agent. But in addition to that, I think that there are other elements that really immerse us into into this world of uh, world of uh, Panem with uh, interesting consequences. And one of these consequences is this: what you were describing about the beginning uh, of uh, the Hunger Games films, with this this lack yeah. of affect in this inter interview situation, and this total lack of human compassion uh, uh, among the yeah, two characters, uh, Flickerman and, and Seneca Crane. Uh, but then it is interesting that uh, very shortly after, when we uh, find uh, Gail and Katniss in the forest, they are not very emotional either, even though it is supposed to be the day of the reaping. So why aren't they, uh, why aren't, why aren't they showing anger? Uh, about the unfairness of the situation, or why aren't, aren't they uh, showing fear, yeah. or any? Uh, they, it is a sadness, but it is very, very mild uh, affect. So, um, but because uh, we are as uh, spectators invited from the very beginning to be in this world, uh, and we do have all these all these feelings. For instance. Uh, uh, so we we try. Uh, I think that we as spectators at that those moments we recognize the lack of affect. We recognize this emotional gap that is there, and we start to mm -hmm. volunteer emotion that the characters themselves are lacking. And this is something else than uh, a process of emotion that goes through a process of identification because this is a result of really being in this cinematic mm. world ourselves. Mm. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. And this, yeah. And I think that this makes this ethical, uh, our ethical engagement also more 
uh, more effective. Alex, how does this work as a fantasy? <laughs> well, well, as, as a, uh, exactly as we've just said, because it, what it relies on is that classic immersive yeah. rhetoric of fantasy that we've talked about so many times on the podcast. Farrah Mendelssohn coins the term the immersive fantasy. But, you know, it, what it does is an immersive fantasy locates our site of interest, our intellectual curiosities, not with a particular character, but with a, with a mm. world. And, you know, she talks about mm-hmm. an irony of mimesis is required because the characters inhabit a situation that you don't inhabit. You are either playing catch up or have foresight as to as to where this is going um and and that means that you're you're not in you're not you know located to one character and and to be honest i think as film scholars we're a bit lazy about identification being like obviously we all watch one film from the protagonist's point of view which is just not how any films really work i don't think but particularly with something like um hunger games something that's speculative something that that poses a what if you're quite right Mm -hmm. is that uh, is that it, our interest is in okay what are the rules what's right and wrong within this world and is this world right or wrong mm-hmm. are the kind of questions yeah. you start to ask yourself. and to be honest the, the the quick answer is no it's not um but but why not and how not and what does this say about our own is becomes mm-hmm. the more the more interesting stuff as the as the film gets going and we and we move from the sort of reaping scene to the capital which is actually i think might be my favorite bit of the movie that bit in the capital where the the games are being set up and it becomes this kind of massive PR exercise, right? The characters mm-hmm. have to engage in this PR stunt to win favors because the, the the narrative is what the um mm-hmm. the, the the more popular you are, the luck you are to succeed in this Hunger Games because you can win mm-hmm. basically charms from the public. Yeah, which is which is very interesting because in these moments in the film, we we just talked about the world yeah. building. Uh, so in those moments, uh, the film builds up not just a world, but really a mediatized mm. world. Yes. Uh, adding, again, another layer, which uh, potentially invites us to reflect on our own position uh, with regard to this, uh, this mediatized world and uh, media in general, I think. The only, I mean, the only thing that ages it is they should all be on their phones, right? They should. Uh, um, Senna should be setting up Katniss's uh, Instagram account and, uh, and and tweeting every every five minutes or something like that. But but that that sort of hypermediaized reality. And, and I've got a lot to say as we go on about sort of because I think the real interesting fantasy point in the film is where that world between and I think emotion plays a key role in this. The world between the mm-hmm. sort of the inner the in, inner world of what characters are actually thinking and feeling and that hyper exterior hypermedial world of 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 excess of exteriority of personas uh, and when characters are behaving in a way because they are required to for the cameras mm-hmm. and when they are asked to behave a certain way I think that becomes really interesting exactly. as the film yeah. as the film yeah. goes on sorry Chris I cut you off no there. no it was it was again building on um Charge's point about this sort of hypermedia or mediated or remediated or mediatized space that is saturated and supported by digital technology. Um, I'm now going to jump to uh, the film Peeping Tom from I think the 60s because um, mm-hmm. I remember si- oh, obviously as what why wouldn't you? Um, but I remember sitting in an undergraduate seminar on Peeping Tom on a module on serial killing. I think it was about serial killing. Um, and Richard Dyer was running the seminar and we talked about the relationship between subjectivity, allegiance and alignment. And it was, well, just because you have Mm -hmm. a point of view shot from somebody's perspective, that is very different to being asked to 
align with them and we and i was trying to figure out why what, what, what how this relates to the hunger games in relation to kind of subjectivity because you do have point of view shots of of katniss once she's stung mm-hmm. by those uh, genetically modified wasps yeah. um which is one of my favorite bits i love that bit very video gamey as well kind of first person mm-hmm. anyway yeah um and it's seen there's and what the hunger games does really well and actually what peeping tom the film does really well because it has the point of view shots from the killer's perspective mm-hmm. but that film and Hunger Games fractures the relationship between subjectivity as something that is created through style, i.e. point mm-hmm. of view, um, allegiance, mm-hmm. which might be narrative, the first character we're introduced to. So in this case, mm-hmm. we're not introduced to Katniss. We kind of find her as a protagonist. Um, and then alignment, which might be on the side of mm-hmm. morals and ethics. So actually, mm-hmm. subjectivity, allegiance and alignment, things that often get oh, we're identifying with the character because we see the world through their eyes. Actually, mm. something like The Hunger Games and, you know, wonderful film like Peeping Tom starts to play with. And I just remember him, Richard, saying, well, these things are, are different and a film might choose to do subjectivity mm-hmm. through style. It might try to do allegiance through narrative and then it might do alignment through morals and ethics. And it seems like all of these things are in play in yeah. the film. We're, who we're aligned with, who we're seeing the world through, um, and what it means to, to have allegiance to a particular character. Well, I think that uh, Richard Dyer uh, is absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> and I totally... Yes. And we'll end the podcast there. We'll end it there. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, the end. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I, uh, this is something that I uh, agree with totally. And I know uh, also, um, yeah, when I am teaching uh, narrative and narration to my students, and especially narration, uh, when we are talking about... Uh, stuff like uh, the range and depth of uh, story information. And I always tell them that there is this one very useful um, sentence. I could be David Bordwell, I don't, I don't recall. Uh, but you should always ask yourself, who knows what when at any given point of the film? Uh, and the same could be said about uh, the issues of narrative. Na- uh, uh, identification and focalization and alignment and allegiance. So, with whom are we aligned or focalized at, or um, uh, feeling allegiance with at any given point? And I think that this is uh, in the Hunger Games, it is very complex issue again. And it is not only true, Katniss. There are many multiple, uh, multiple uh, perspectives uh, for us to choose. Uh, from um, with whom to engage uh, either from a like uh, from narrative point of view or from an ethical ethical point of view Um, Katniss is always all the time making wrong choices uh, as an ethical agent she is very much uh, very uh, she is not a perfect uh, uh, ethical hero who is... No, she, she makes wrong choices and ethically wrong choices all the time. And there are other characters who are actually much more uh, uh, ethically um, in the right uh, at, mm-hmm. uh, in, many, in, in many instances. So... Um, uh, I think that our, uh, and this is also what makes this uh, uh, film series and, and the novels, well, novels maybe less, because we, with the novels we are all the time with, with Katniss. So it, because it's one first-person narration and we are uh, forced 
to be focalized through her all the time. Uh, but the film, the film series is actually an improvement because it gives us so many different perspectives, inclusive, including uh, President Snow. And I mm. am, uh, uh, perhaps because I love Donald Sutherland, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, so I, um, I am uh, naturally attracted to this uh, characters, uh, character because of this, but uh, it is uh, also... Um, interesting how this film also invites us to think through his uh, motivations and um, mm. yeah sort of uh, the art of war and uh, game that he is playing and it's, it's interesting in one of your chapters you might do this in more than one chapter but i can remember one the your chapter where you talk about kind of the role of fear and hope in in the uh, in the in the franchise as this kind of structuring agent for ethical engagement, you use a quote, I believe, from um, mm-hmm. President Snow's uh, as the sort of start. You know, it's where, where the standard sort of quote from I don't know uh, Nietzsche or David Bordwell or Richard Dyer would go. Normally, you put a quote from President Snow quite playfully, which is the um, what does he say? You know, hope is the only thing yeah. stronger yeah. Uh, than fear, and and it make and it's it make it's the most it, his he articulates the ethical stakes and the emotional stakes of the whole show uh um more clearly than um than any other of the characters throughout the thing because everyone else is quite reactionary everyone else reacts and says oh no that's horrible and and there's a very but there's no, no one actually sort of cerebrally articulates what their position is on life and why and snow provides that i mean it's kind of in many ways it's exactly what you were saying earlier about that kind of you know we should be wary about how how much pure intellect can help us in that he is if anything just yeah. pure intellect he is he is the superego in freudian terms articulating kind of uh here is what the universal rule should be now go and yeah. live life by it um and yet we don't find ourselves no. compelled to exactly so, this is exactly what is going on <laughs> i think <laughs> yeah oh, wonderful uh this is uh um, yeah, I, I agree that he has this uh, overview of the whole situation. And he is uh, at all times, except then towards the end, uh, he's in charge, he's in control. Uh, and he is he's the only one who is coherent and logical. Uh, the only problem is that his logic is its double think. Uh, but nevertheless, we are somehow invited to uh, uh, understand his reasoning. Which makes him at, uh, as at least as important a character as Katniss, Katniss herself. So they uh, they complement each other uh, very much uh, in in this film. So um, well, I think the things that you were saying around around the, the you said about who knows what when at any given point in the film. These questions of knowledge. Um, I think that's again what the film sets up really nicely and and does. So I haven't read the the novels, but um, the Again, I think these can be attributed these qualities of knowledge and and, and have been connected to, to fictional worlds and 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 the way that knowledge works to determine people's place in in the world and and writing on fictional worlds, whether it's Krasinski on on video games and ruins and ruins giving us an indication that a world we never you know we join a world in the middle and ruins mm. give us a, 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 a an indication of of the fact that this world has a past and and. Perkins writing on fictional worlds talking about he talks about Citizen Kane but he says the way that that texts constitute a believable world and when I'm teaching fictional worlds 
getting students to not use the word realistic, but talking in different ways about coherency, believability, um, fantasy, I suppose. But the way in which worlds are constituted as worlds, he says, because within it there are facts that are known to all, to many, to few, and to none. Um, and there will always be events that are independent to um, perception. Part of the drama of Toy Story is that we know that Buzz thinks he's the real Buzz Lightyear, and, and so his knowledge of his own identity is is partial mm-hmm. and that's what makes him believable as a character because he doesn't know everything um and so there's some interesting he perkins talks about to be in a world is to know the partiality of knowledge and the boundedness of vision and i think one of the things that the hunger games does really nicely is it has katniss discover things often discovering things as we as we do yeah. or we discover things about the world as she does once she starts playing the games i like the way that knowledge constructs the different levels of worldhood mm-hmm. but it also constructs the way that characters engage with the world um and the things that they know the things that they don't know the things that they have to learn the things that they have to be mentored about you know it's alice in wonderland it's the, it's the immersive or the the mm-hmm. porthole quest fantasy it's the jumping into a world and coming out it's the and you get that quality mm-hmm. in the hunger games without characters actually going through a portal though they kind of do because they go up through those kind of tunnel Mm -hmm. things so they enter into a a wonderland yeah (laughs) and uh uh, in addition to what you uh, were just saying i think that this also makes uh the series a mind game of sorts as well so it has something uh because uh because because it has this uh play with uh, hierarchies of uh, who knows what mm. when uh, it so this El Sasa mind, yeah, like exactly. mind game film that kind of thing yeah so it ha- it has that that element as well so this there is this game within uh, within the film but this uh, film is also playing games with us because it is yeah. uh, it is not giving us uh, all the narrative information we uh, hu- uh, we might have a hunch that it is uh, so- something is going on that is much bigger like like Katniss uh, but we don't know exactly what it is and what is going to happen and and like how this uh, next move of the game is going to play uh, be played and what is the strategy of the game and and, and so forth and so forth yeah so. Uh, is that a structure of the novels as well? Is that a structure? Because I'm just thinking about going back to your very, very first point about you know the the young the genre of mm-hmm. the, the film. Actually, the way that you yeah connecting it to the mind game film, which is and, and puzzle films and puzzle narratives are, are often seen as a very sort of post classical or mm-hmm. post 2002 three. We're off, off after Memento. We've 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 done Inception and we're 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 away now doing these kind of complex narratives. Does the film? sort of absorb that Hollywood context then for you in, in terms of it being a film of 2012-13 that is, I mean, I don't know whether it does that kind of narrative structure in the, in the novel per se, but that seems to me as a very sort of Hollywood way of doing narration. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I am uh, hesitant to uh, labelling this film a mind game <laughs> film, uh, at yeah. least not in the same sense as Memento is or Inception or yeah, uh, yeah. Lola Rent or stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Uh, but it has some elements from there, and there is there is a narrative twist uh, uh, in the end, uh, which uh, which comes which can be considered as a mind mind a mind game twist mm. uh, that um, totally goes against our narrative expectations, perhaps and and Katniss's 
So Katniss is like in the Mayan gay films, at least according to this uh, uh, definition by Elsa, sir. Uh, that mm. mind game film is a film where the character is being played with. So, well, this would be make the, the Hunger Games series a mind game film, at least according to this definition. And the spectator yeah. is being played to game with. So the both elements are there, mm. even though not as uh, explicitly as in some other um, uh, intentionally uh, intentional yeah. mind game films. I would say it, it, it's not a, so much a what's going on. It's not, it's not a film where you have to struggle to keep up with the narrative. Mm-hmm. You know what's going on, but why it's going on, certainly once we get into the, the games themselves, is what is the mind game, right? Is the, why, why are the characters mm-hmm. doing this? And, what's, and what I think the skill of the film is, and I think this is a, a skill of the film rather than the book, because the book, as, as you've said, Taja, puts, mm-hmm. puts you very much in the mind space yeah. of, of Katniss. So at least in the book, there's an ambiguity about what the other characters are, are truly up mm-hmm. to, but, but you're at least grounded in Katniss's yeah. psychology. In the film, we talked mm-hmm. about allegiance. The main point of kind of spatial allegiance, uh, and you make this point, is 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 actually with the with us with the you know the diegetic on screen spectators mm-hmm. watching the games right that's if actually where we're physically placed to yeah. inhabit for for the the second half of the movie and I'd like to talk about your, your thoughts on sort of how that encourages us to think about the movie because exactly as you said with the cornucopia mm-hmm. scene or no indeed with the reaping scene we're, we're with the characters but we're not we're sort of mm-hmm. with the spectators yeah. and we're not in, in exactly that kind of same slippery world but the, the game very much becomes um, okay is what we are what is what we're watching a choreographed uh, publicity stunt or you know is it is it a fiction no we're talking about fantasy is this a fictional event happening is this love story we're watching play out fictional played out for our eyes only or is this something that has internal interior reality and i think that's the the Mm -hmm. mind puzzle of 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 the film if there is one um sorry what was this a question (laughs) well i guess it wasn't really a question it was it was some it was it was a bunch Uh, of comments but i guess the question would be what why do you think it does that and what well i think in terms of what encourages well i think that the film does that uh again much more than the novels uh, because uh, mm. it wants us to somehow uh, constantly uh, switch uh, positions between um, between the uh, the spectators uh, within the film, the, so the diegetic uh, spectators, mm. and and then those who are who are playing the game or who are forced to play the game. Mm. And it is it is constant switching uh, between the positions. And I think that this is uh, done. Uh, uh, so that we reflect on what does it mean to look. Um, so we are not uh, yeah. fooled into uh, thinking that we, and we are not uh, allowed to, <laughs> again, this word, uh, identify with uh, with the people in the in the game arena, for instance, mm. uh, because the the. the uh, film, I think, in its own way, wants us to remember that we are not we are not the victims of of the game. We are we are we remain always mm. the spectators. So it this switching, I think, creates a very reflective viewing position, inviting us to mm. really Absolutely. think about our own position as as spectators as well. I think this mm. is this is a big yeah. theme yeah. throughout uh, this uh, film series. 
and and I think that's obviously where the connection to to the Truman Show, which you make, is it's interesting. You make you make it as a as a comparison to to a, a type of film that critiques, I suppose, what what is that ninety seven ninety eight. Mm-hmm. A certain degree of, of as we move towards Big Brother and that yeah. kind of reality television, which you say in the in the in the book, um, but with the Hunger Games, I, I kept forgetting that I was watching something that was potentially being edited and fictionalized for us. And you, there are occasional moments where you see the events on a screen, and 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 there are hints of that earlier on. One of my mm. one of my early notes is as part of the way in which the world. Or the, the way that the film distinguishes between the low tech and the high tech, um, I've put Katniss has her own touchscreen and blue screen. Like when she changes the background, she's I think she's when she's in her she has like the remote control and she's like yeah, playing yeah, with the yeah. different mm. different backdrops mm. and things like this. And I was like, oh, okay, this is an interesting way of of thinking about effects more generally. Um, but there's something there's something interesting about how the film. As I said, I kept forgetting that that it. It was being watched, and then we'd ha- we'd suddenly have mm. glimpses of spectators and, and a world outside, mm-hmm. and that that then changed and destabilized the way I thought about the events. Exactly as Alex is saying, the kind of potential, potential, the potential for manipulation at the level of the creator. Mm-hmm. So you have Wes Bentley's character who is creating creatures and Im- embedding them into the fictional world, the real world, but our fictional world sort of thing or the way that we understand the fiction but then you also have our viewing position continually as you say destabilized by realizing that there could be another level of control in the way that the events are being presented so when Katniss first sees the camera mm-hmm. that's in the tree for example and realizes that she's on camera um, there is a sense in which there's an, another level of, of seen and being seen in a way that I don't know. It, it it creates this idea that everything is very artificial. I think that's the word I'm looking for. Mm. There's something quite artificial in the way that the events are being potentially structured for us as spectators mm-hmm. and for the spectators in the film. That this love story, as I said, could be being mm-hmm. created in a way that is, you know, yeah. conventional or or synthetic. But th- those different levels of mediation, again, I think, mm-hmm. come from the levels of worlds. There's us watching people watching the. Mm-hmm. watching the events and and yeah i mean if it's not clear i really liked the film if that has not become clear <laughs> just yet, um i think that's very interesting and i think that it also shows that uh yet another conflict or juxtaposition that this this mm-hmm. creates in, in the film i think this also between performing and playing a game mm. uh, because you can't it, it yeah. almost uh seem that you can't do the you can and you can't do both these things simultaneously. So, on the one hand, when um, Katniss and Pete are performing this uh, love affair, they are obviously at the same time they are playing the game. But then there are moments when you have to forget that you are being uh, what looked at or watched at uh, at all times because otherwise you won't be able to uh, function uh, within this within this uh, game uh, game arena. I, I think that gives, you know, it, it, this is young adult fiction. I think that, you know, to speculate on why the thing resonates with its target audience, I mean, there's lots of reasons why it was. One is this it's really good, but uh, other reasons, you know, is that there is something about the kind of forging an identity in a world where you are acutely seen 
that that feels you know very on 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 message with the kind of the, mm. the, the struggles of this generation or the generation of, of of you know the Hunger Games's target audience in that it's it's a film about teenagers struggling to be authentic in a world where the entire world mm. is watching mm. them or whether that be you know social media or whether that be uh, just you know the, you know all the, all the the, the 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 mediated ways in which they are required mm. to exist and. And you know, there's a rhetoric. Uh, the the uh, we've thrown about all the kinds of rhetorics of fantasy we like to play with on this show. But the, one of them is is this, this the, the mm. liminal rhetoric. This idea that you know, fantasy can stage this in between between belief and disbelief to the point where it's actually in the in in that hesitation between the two where the truth lies. And, and the, this film is about you know, mm. in much as all teen shows are about mm -hmm. finding identity, um, this is about the the, the yeah. difficulty of yeah. finding identity or stages the difficulty of finding identity in the sense by the end of it you don't know who no. Katniss is you know you, you have a much firmer understanding of Katniss in the first half of this movie than the second half of the movie or the who, or the person Katniss and Peter yeah. become by the end of this thing and and it really leaves you with an ambiguous sense that actually the one thing you should take away from this is that you you mm -hmm. don't know that as you say seeing it doesn't allow you access into interiority mm. in the way that um, the you know I've forgotten um, Stanley Kutcher's character's name, uh, but that that character the, the show host seems to obsessed mm -hmm. with doing. You know, it's that looking gives us access. Looking gives us um, access to the interior, and the film kind of stages this complete yeah. failure of that viewing position to do that. And there's something really interesting about that in terms of its function as YA uh, yes. fiction. Yes, and well. uh, uh, this is uh, also uh, a world <laughs> where these mm. um, uh, participants are forced to construct an identity, which is very, very yeah. fantastic. Uh, uh, this is not uh, what uh, she appears to be, uh, especially for the capital uh, uh, mm -hmm. audience. And, and what is then, and, and this authentic, uh, and, and, but she is not the mocking Jay either. These are both no. uh, constructive, fantastic, uh, fantastic identities and what she mm. really is, like you say, well, that's, that's the question. I think yeah. that the, uh, uh, in uh, the first uh, installment of, the, uh, of, the, of these films, I think that uh, Kato's character is also very interesting because uh, uh, mm. he has been forced to uh, uh, perform this role from from the throughout his whole life, and then right before he dies, he gets this epiphany about like how artificial and how phantasmatic and how uh, not authentic mm. this uh, this identity uh, is, and and then. Uh, this monologue that he utters is uh, gains this very authentic uh, authentic uh, uh, aura, uh, which is which is which is I think interesting because this is again a character um, with whom we are not supposed to develop uh, uh, engage with uh, uh, from uh, ethical point of view. So this is another character who invites sure. a line a moral al alignment. From mm. us, but uh, which actually yeah. becomes uh, a very ethically insightful uh, moment when this character uh, realizes that what you said, just said about this juxtaposition uh, between the fantastic constructed 
a mediatized identity and, and an uh, authentic yeah. one. I've, I've looked at the time and I can't believe we've been going nearly an hour already. So we're going to have to start wrapping up, which means it's the point of the show where Chris and I fire random observations at you because we're desperate to hear your insights on them. I mean, a couple I've got, uh, the, I, I noted you talking a little bit in your book about the sort of the, the, the kind of geo or the environmental politics mm-hmm. that's going on in, in the film and how, and how it links to that. And I wondered if we could talk about that and li- link it to the digital in the, one thing that struck me is that we have these two mirror forests, don't we? We have the forest of the beginning of the movie, which we briefly see Katniss in. And and if the film is ever sort of nostalgic or, um, uh, or you know, the, mm-hmm. utopic in any way, it, it's for this kind of world of, you know, a hunter's living where you walk up to the local bakery where the baker's boy tosses you a sort of homemade ciabatta, it would seem. You know, there's a certain kind of almost hipster paradise caked within this dystopic world of of locally mm-hmm. sourced produce and uh, and artisan labour. And, 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 and there's something very interesting about kind of that world which it then contrasts mm-hmm. with the kind of the forests of the Hunger Games, which mm-hmm. are artificial and built and digitized and and genetically modified. Um, uh, and and did it, how does does that play? Is the, the way the film uses those two worlds or those two mm-hmm. realms? How does that play into your thinking? Uh, well, I think that this uh, this this forest, this uh, uh, natural forest, uh, Katniss's uh, Katniss's forest, that would be the uh, utopia indeed. What you what you say, and, and it is mm. it is not a coincidence. I think that the the uh, the, the trilogy or uh, this quartet uh, ends there, constructing this idea of uh, or the, uh, like natural world as the authentic world. Uh, I think, uh, or is it? I just started to I'm starting to doubt whether this is true because. Um, that would entail that uh, the film is saying that the uh, um, natural world is more natural than uh, the technological world, but in fact, this is this is not the case. Certainly not within not within the games themselves, right? In the, in the games themselves, the natural and the technological are one and the same. I don't know. Mm. It certainly has very little kind things to say about ur- urban technolized life does it it definitely contrasts the kind of the world of katniss in district 12 as something preferable to say the capital the capital is this kind of cesspool of urban you know it's the last days of rome it's um whatever whatever it is but it i think the film is much harsher in its tone to that community than say the the the, the quiet mining community of district 12 um, yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I get your point, and especially uh, uh, the, also the opening, opening scenes of the Hunger Games, which are uh, reminiscent of this uh, Dorothy Lange photography, even though they uh, uh, represent uh, poverty and precariousness and uh, 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 standard of uh, life which is uh, much lower than in the other trees. But there is something nostalgic about those uh, those pictures, uh, those uh, those uh, that imagery as well. There's something attractive there, uh, some kind of rustic uh, rustic quality, which might uh, confirm uh, what you just said. That even though it is precarious, it, even though it is a lower standard of life than a capital, it's still preferable. Well, I think I the, the pivot, isn't it, the, the sort of makeover sequence or the early on when the characters are getting make, made over um, and then when they're being sort of presented, I think there's a line about 
kind of character the characters are designed sculpted and made over to reflect the district isn't it so impressive the way that the characters are are designed you know and, and that's that's a lot of the characters and the costumes and the kind of costume design is is really excessive and sort of ludicrous and and even though mm-hmm. the film doesn't yeah. I, you know again there's a version of this film where it, it sort of keeps continually cutting between those who are watching and the kind of community um that you describe that sort of rustic way of life and the world of the hunger games mm-hmm. and and it's sort of but it doesn't it spends it spends the majority of the time in the hunger games so it doesn't have that distinction mm-hmm. to continually lean upon mm. to 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 identify how brilliant one space is over the other because it spends pretty much mm-hmm. all of its time in the world of the constructed yeah. and the sort of the 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 televisual which yeah. you talk a lot about kind of televisuality yeah, this in the is, book this so is, yeah um, yeah if we state, uh, if, if we spent more time yeah. in the capital and with the capital audience, I think that uh, the film might uh, run a risk of uh, becoming too artificial. Um, mm. Mm. Perhaps because it is so because it is so uh, over the top and uh, so spectacular. Uh, so um, I don't know if this is the case, but perhaps uh, our uh, time in the capital is li- limited because of, because of, uh, otherwise um, it mm. would feel less much less uh, uh, yeah. authentic in this in its world making. And um, you know, the second point uh, I think that is related to your second point because oh, about this uh, this wolf uh, yeah. mutts which are in the film, not in the novel, uh, created mm. digitally. Um, but they, at the same time, they are very real because they are lethal. They can kill and they have this, this uh, physical presence and uh, physicality. So I think that maybe uh, it says something about that, uh, these distinctions between digital mm. and, 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 um, and organic and uh, uh, artificial and, and, and natural are not so uh, clear um, and have never been. No. Not in our life, uh, and not in our world, and not in the world of um, the Hunger Games, perhaps. But it is an interesting. Con- it's it's an interesting paradox, I think. There. Yeah, and and, and and we talk a lot about visible and, and invisible effects, and I don't I don't know, but I strongly suspect, for example, the deer that gets away from Katniss in the first few minutes of the movie is not a is not a real. Uh, Dear, uh, I suspect you know that there's you know that in terms of the, the the creation of the movie that that feeds into most of our discussions on VFX. Listen to mm. me speaking like I know what I'm talking about, mm. Chris. You've taught me well. Um, is which is that you know actually the, it's those shots that are often usually the most caked in 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 CGI kind of um, aesthetics. Whether it's it's mm-hmm. removing uh, the various sort of parts of the world around it or adding those sort of things. And I think the film does does engage with that um, very very nicely indeed. And I think, but I. But uh, yeah, I wonder where it's where it's. Does it play into its eco politics that it kind of represents that which is natural as somehow better as that which is kind of technolized and and mediated through some sort of artificial um, spree? I'm not. I'm not sure. But it's it, and no. it seems these films when we watch them in 2021, and I think what the last one was 2015, 14, 15. Um, there's something about mm. certainly going back to the, well having gone back to a group of films and going back to the first one, having not seen them, 
there, there's so much, and maybe this this returns us to one of your uh, initial points about sort of trying to say something meaningful. It seems like these there is lots to say mm. about what this film has to say about politics and the media and hierarchy and image and all of these yeah. sorts of things that seem that that seem rife for this kind of analysis and the way in which it makes perfect sense that the contents of this kind of film would connect up to some to sort of politics out there in the world because of the way these yeah. films yeah. the novels are written the way that the films are produced and that kind of and so it seems inevitable that there'd be that collision and i think that this is the reason why these films have been so uh, inspiring for people i mean like uh look at uh, the ways in which this uh, three finger salute mm. has been mm. adopted in different uh, different uh, uh, very real political contexts yeah. mm. so uh yeah i think that this is uh, this is what uh, was another a uh, reason for me to write the book in the first place because it was uh, I was interested mm. in why do these films inspire uh, so much as they uh, seem to do. Well, let uh, if you know we we've hopefully glimpsed at some of the insights that are available in your book in in that in that chat. We you know all, always too brief, but um, wonderful to do so. Um, Tasha's book, uh, Emotional Ethics of the Hunger Games, is available now. You can um, get it in all good uh, online bookshops whether they are from uh, rainforests or otherwise um Tarja, thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been an absolute pleasure to chat the hunger games and to revisit it with you um it's been it's been wonderful to hear your insights yeah thank you very much the pleasure was all mine thank you uh, well, that, thank that, you that for is, the conversation. <laughs> no, but that is not true because uh, there was yes. a lot of pleasure this side. But thank well. you uh, for your graciousness. <laughs> uh, very quick bit of admin. Of course, you can find us at fantasy-animation.org where you can find all our blogs and podcasts. Um, you can also um, find us on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, uh, and uh, Facebook at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. But that's been us for another episode and we'll see you next time. Bye. Are you... Are you coming to the tree? They strung up a man. They say who murdered three. Strange things did happen here. No stranger would it be if we met at midnight in the hanging tree. Are you, are you coming to the tree?